welcome to Rigged Episode 9, The Tragedy of Jim Hanchett. In this episode, Jamie, Ilias, and Chris review the interview of former Amherst lab supervisor and number one heroin manufacturer, Jim Hanchett. Jim, unfortunately, retired right before the recording of this interview, and after listening to how he ran his lab, that is in no way surprising. All of that and more on this episode of Rigged. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Rigged Podcast again. And uh, today we are going to go over uh, the interview that Jim Hanchett did after. So we've gone, we've done the interview with Rebecca Ponce. We've done the interview with Sharon Salem. And now we are at the interview with their boss from the Amherst Lab, Jim Hanchett. Um, do you guys want to say anything before we get going and just dive right into the actual interview? I say let's dive in. All right. So the first clip is three minutes, Randy. It's uh, clip number one. Yep. Here it is. Okay. And we're on the record. My name is Captain Steve Fennessy. I'm with the Massachusetts State Police. I'm assigned to the Attorney General's office in Boston. Uh, today's date is Friday, December 11th, 2015. The time is approximately 10.53 a.m. And we are in uh, the small conference room in the uh, Springfield office of the Attorney General's office. And what I'd like to do now is just, uh, for the record, identify each person in the room. Uh, Thomas Caldwell, Assistant Attorney General, uh, signed to the Criminal Bureau of the Boston office. Thank you. Mr. James Hatchett, retired. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Hatchett. <laughs> Um, so, Mr. Hanchett, I know uh, we've had some previous conversations. Uh, I know we spoke yesterday. Yep. And um, I just want, I have with me here an original copy um, of a letter that I sent you via electronic uh, mail. It's mm -hmm. um, dated December 10th. It's addressed to James Hanchett at 25 Kenneth Road in Northampton, Massachusetts. And I'm just going to um, read this letter just for the record, and you did receive this. Yes, I did. And I, I will give you a, a hard copy of this today for your records, and I also have one for mine. Um, so it says, Dear Mr. Hanchett, this letter confirms that the Office of the Attorney General will meet with you to receive an accurate and complete statement pertaining to your knowledge of larceny of narcotics, evidence tampering, distributions of controlled substances, possession of controlled substances, and other crimes at the Amherst Drug Laboratory. You have been previously advised by this office to seek legal counsel in regards to this matter. You have the right to an attorney. Uh, you have the right to have an attorney contact this office and pre uh, be present during any conversations and take part in any negotiations between the office of the attorney general regarding the aforementioned subject. Uh, it is of great importance that you understand that statements made or other information provided by you will not be used by the office of the attorney general directly against you in any judicial proceeding. Following our meeting, the Office of the Attorney General will evaluate the information you provided. This letter does not obligate the Attorney General or any other law enforcement agency to enter into any further agreements with you, nor does it prohibit the Attorney General or any other law enforcement agency from prosecuting you for any offense. If any subsequent agreement is to be made, its terms will be negotiated separately. The protections provided to you by this agreement pertain only to statements made and information provided by you during the course of the meeting. Uh, these projections do not extend to statements made or testimony provided by you at other times. And this is my contact information, sign Thomas Collins, Assistant Chairman Town. So, Jim, I'm going to give you this. If you want to read over. I read it. That's that, right. Um, I understand. So. All right. That's the end of clip one. So uh, about <laughs> is derivative use immunity. So essentially what they're saying is I've got this witness here, Captain Fennessy, at some uh, trial in the future where you might be the defendant. He's never going to come in and testify about what you talked about right now. However, it doesn't mean we're not going to charge you for the underlying transaction. That would be transactional immunity. Okay. 
And, and so, can I just point out? So, um, in our last episode, I flagged uh, a, a statement in a footnote uh, describing the allegations against Sonia Farak as her um, removing drugs from the lab purportedly for her own use. Uh, and now we have a statement that that um, Mr. Hanchett will be asked questions relative to an investigation into, among other things, distribution of controlled substances out of the Amherst lab. Uh, yeah, and so that too. That, that's an interesting uh, 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 question in my mind is, did anyone ever do that investigation? Hmm. And we can move on. Right, cool. uh, we may never know, but what we do know is that uh, the AG's office, and that you'll hear it next in the next clip too, but they went out of their way to make sure that Jim Hanchett knew that he had the right to an attorney over and over again. They, they tell him that, and they are very, uh, they're very, it seems they're very wanting to make sure that he, you know, has all the rights available to them, which I'm sure they extend those, you know, to everyone who's accused of a crime. Right. Potentially. All right. Uh, next clip. Clip two. Here it goes. So just for the record, can you explain to um, me and Captain Pesci what you think that means? Well, basically, you're looking into what happened at the laboratory with uh, Sonia Farrakh. Mm -hmm. That's my understanding. And I'll help you any way I can. And I did contact my union for a lawyer. And they, never got, well, they got back to me, but they never offered any help, so. And, so that was, and that was Moses? Yes. Well, I'm retired now, so they said, basically, you're on your own. Which I don't, and I talked to Sharon, and I talked to Rebecca, and they said they didn't get a lawyer, so I really don't feel like you one either. Okay. Um, that's not true. That's the, They had a lawyer from Moses present. So, right. uh, <laughs> during both interviews. So, I... Uh, that's my, a bad intel on James Hanch's part. Right. My understanding of the way... Um, well, unions work, but specifically Moses, uh, with respect to uh, the, the labs, is that only, uh, I'll call it the rank and file uh, chemists, are eligible to be members. And once you become a supervisor, uh, you can't be a member uh, of the union. That's my understanding. Uh, and that would be the reason not to, um, uh, to provide um, uh, Mr. Hanchett with representation. Uh, my understanding is the retirement wouldn't, wouldn't be a reason uh, because think about that. I mean, that means if you retire, then you're on your own. I mean, that's not the way any organization takes care of its members. But um, but it seems to me that um, he, uh, I'm not sure if he actually thought about getting a lawyer or, or maybe was so convinced that what he had been doing was known to all that he didn't think he needed one. That would be my my guess. Interesting. I, I think so too. And that, and I think that comes to bear too. And and by the way, he retired, quote unquote, a week before this, or like a few days before this. So Moses was like, uh, "Yeah, I know you you were with us for this entire time, but yeah, you retired a week ago. So no, we're not giving you a lawyer." So and, and was he retired? Did he retire after he was walked out of the building? Yes, yeah. like <laughs> that was his retirement ceremony. Yeah, fire me because I quit. <laughs> yeah. They gave him a balloon as they walked him out, not in handcuffs, you know, that's his retirement. All right. Uh, so let's go to clip three. Okay, clip three, here it goes. So just in terms of, the, especially the, the first paragraph, mm -hmm. it, it indicates in, in terms of statements you make. Mm -hmm. um, so what's your understanding about statements um, and evidence that you give or that we discussed today about the MRS lab? What protections do you have? Well, basically you said that I... I wouldn't be held responsible for anything I said at this date. Okay. Yeah, and that essentially is what it is. Anything that you tell us now, um, and I'm telling you this, it will not be prosecuted yeah. for. Um, what, um, James, what we need is we need the, the full, accurate account of what happened in the lab. There's no issues with what happened. We all knew what Sonia Farak did, and obviously the huge fallout from, from what went on at the lab. Um, but what we're looking for you today is, is to give you certain protections, protections for mm -hmm. any prosecution, any type of exposure that we think you may have, yeah. you may, you may, may not, but we just want to make sure that you just understand that uh, anything you tell us, um, you're, you're protected. Um, 
And that's why we need the, the full story. Okay. Happened. And I know you testified many times. Um, and there's some just specific things that we need to ask. Sure. Right? Now you, um, so that's like a really, to the non-lawyers, it's a really sneaky way of saying, like, these statements you make right now, you will not be prosecuted for. It's not the underlying things that you did you will not be prosecuted for. That's the difference. Mm. So your past behavior, you won't be, uh, I see. Yeah, and also, um, it just, uh, it, it's just striking to me that, again, how much they're kind of like taking the time to explaining to to him how he won't be, <laughs> he won't be held accountable. And, and he's like, well, you want to know what Sonia did. And if in the rest of the interview is all about drug standards. It's, it's, they, they ask him maybe a couple questions about Sonia, but it's mostly about how he manufactured drug standards. But um, is, Chris, um, and, and, and again, this is uh, me being a, a civil uh, lawyer and not um, spending too much time in the world of immunity deals, but with, uh, in, in transactional immunity, uh, my understanding is that there's a limitation, which is if you lie in a meeting, mm -hmm. uh, you could be prosecuted for, for lying. Uh, especially if it's a federal investigation. Um, uh, it, what, was there any such consequence here? Meaning, was was he was this a total freebie um, to say whatever this, he wanted? I believe this is just derivative use. So what, what they're saying is, these statements that you tell us right now are never going to get to a jury. They're That's not exactly right. it. Even if even in a perjury trial, based on well, lying in the meeting. I mean, well, you, I mean, if if with the exception that if he perjures themselves, they can do it. But what they're saying is the government is not going to use this recording in evidence in a trial against you. Right. Cause right. I just wonder if, 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 um, um, if he perjures themselves, then it's fair game. Okay. But do they tell him, do they tell him that? Well, he's violating the contract with them to tell them, yeah. you know, fully what he knows. Right. So, they don't have to abide by that contract anymore. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we are on um, clip four, I believe. And I think they do make the correction here to tell him that th this is not just about Sonia Farrakh. But uh, go ahead, clip four, Randy. Um, we had a discussion yesterday. I know we, we spoke by phone last week. So you indicated you attempted to get a lawyer through Moses. Yep. And you never heard back from them. Well, they didn't, they didn't call me back. They said they were going to have to meet with somebody to get it approved and they never got back to me after that. So I'm assuming they didn't get the approval. Okay. So, and, and it was your, is, is it fair that it was your decision today to come in here yes. and us with, without legal counsel? Right. I, after I discussed it with Sharon and Rebecca, they, they said they didn't have legal counsel. So I said, I'm just out here either. So, okay. So, um, you, I want you to realize that at any time, you know, you, you need to take a break mm -hmm. or like I said, you need to maybe if you want to, have counsel come in here and be involved without any further discussions or at any point, you know, you can obviously do that. That's okay. right. So we, I just want to make it clear. We're not, we're here of your own free will. Yep. I understand. And I just want to add, um, uh, is, is it okay to call you Jim? Sure. Okay. That's fine. Um, I just uh, want to add, I think when uh, Tom asked you, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. This letter mean, I think you responded that we're going to ask you about, you know, Sonia Farrakh. Yeah. Well, it's not going to be, sort of limited okay. to Sonia Farrakh, okay, just so you understand yeah. it, okay? All right. <laughs> In fact, it might not have anything to do with Sonia Farrakh, but... <laughs> initially, they, please get a lawyer. <laughs> initially, they, they had a grand jury investigation, I believe, out of Hampton County that was just looking at Farrakh, and when they learned about the standards issue, they then uh, started a statewide grand jury convening in Boston um, where they were looking at whether or not anyone at DPH had committed crimes. And they said like, we, you know, they repeated a couple of times, we just need to know what happened here. We need to know what happened so we can then bury that information forever. Just so we know. We'll never let the public know. We need to know what happened, Jim. We need to, so we can never tell anyone. Importantly uh, for the listeners, you can get a copy of the attorney general's report online. It's public, it's free, and you'll be able to know how many 
instances there are where there are things he tells them that are indicative of crimes or, you know, are indicative of problems at the lab that are just not in the official report. All right. So, Randy, let's skip over uh, five. That's just how many times he has testified in court. Let's go to uh, clip, clip six okay. and go over his work history. All right. Work history does. So, um, Tim, who, when did you start at the lab? 77. Uh, this 77, I believe. And that was the laboratory at Amherst? Yes. Okay. And um, what, uh, what, what college did you graduate Full Technological Institute. And did you receive any further degrees uh, after all? No. And what did you first start doing in, in 77 at the Amherst Laboratory? I worked at the food lab for maybe a year or so. Okay. What kind of testing did you do at the food lab? Uh, meats, milks. Uh, do you just test for pesticides or mercury and storage fish? Too? Just, you know, contamination, chemical contamination. Also, we test the uh, percentage of uh, additives to meats. Okay. When did you start testing um, alleged narcotics or narcotics? It's probably two years after I started, maybe 79. I you know, don't know exactly, but approximately then. Okay. Who was your superior at that time? Uh, I think by then, I, I originally it was uh, Fred D. Bigorio. He's dead now. Then maybe around that time, I started working on the no, My immediate supervisor was Richard Wasfewitz. And um, was that at the same location the entire time, the drug laboratory? Yes. On the campus? Yes, same. Rooms might be different, but it was in the same location. Okay. What room was that lab? Do you recall in what building was it? It was in Moral One. Okay. And the room number, I... Uh, I can't remember. There was two different room numbers we had. We had actually we had the lab in three different rooms at one time. And I can't. Two thirty-six was the last one. That's all I remember. Okay. Um, now that was obviously under the Department of Public Health. Correct. Okay. Who uh, at the time he started testing the lab? Who was the head of the Department of Public Health? If you remember. Oh, geez, I don't remember. Who was the? Head? Do you remember who the head of the laboratory was? In terms at at Boston, yes. Boston lab, yeah, it was uh, Doctor. Uh, what was his name? Uh, if you know, no, if I don't remember. I, I still took my tongue, but I, I talked. So, um, but there was always a laboratory. Michael, George Michael, George Michaels, and there was always a laboratory at Hinton, correct? Uh, that was also testing drugs. No, no, no. When did the Hinton lab open? That would be a guess. We're at six hundred Washington Street when I started. Okay. And then they moved the Hinton lab after they got rid of Michaels. Okay. And thrown him out. Okay. And um It's funny, Jim Hancher kind of seems like a nice dude, you know, on the surface. Uh, yeah. I mean, he seems like a, a fairly normal guy. Like that uh, that's no, kind of what the I seventies, you know, this and that, you know. When I was working there, you know, he just seems like an average yeah. guy. Yes. All right. So uh, he'd been working there for a while. So what, what, let's um, uh, let's talk about his duty. So clip seven, his duties and responsibilities as the lab supervisor. All right. There we go. What was uh, so now? Just just moving forward. Uh, when did you become the lab supervisor? Oh, jeez. I was a lab supervisor one, I think. I don't know, 2008? 2008. And what? Or no, no, maybe a little bit before that. It was basically I was, you know, in charge of the drug lab. Okay. And I had my boss, Alan Stevenson, was directly above me. Okay. And did he retire? Yeah, it was probably around 2008, 2009, I think. Okay. And what, what, what level cast for you at the time that you were made head of the lab? Uh, it was a lab soup one, which they moved me up to lab soup two, I believe, when I was made out of lab. And how long did you work for Alan Seeds? Oh, he was probably my boss for 15 years, 10 years, 12, something like that. And at that point, you took over all his duties and responsibilities. Yes, that's okay. So now, in your in your time as lab supervisor, can you tell us your, your duties and responsibilities? I was basically a supervised lab, order supplies. Okay. What are any materials you need to need to maintain you know, maintenance of the instruments, and uh, you know, take care of the personnel. You know, 
find people to work certain hours, vacations, whatever. Okay. And I, would, I always get that approved through uh, Julie Nassif. Okay, Julie Nassif. So, um, who is Julie Nassif? She was the, uh, she became head of the uh, old truck labs just prior to me becoming uh, head of the Amherst lab, maybe two years before. Okay. They took her out of the, I don't know, the uh, chemical labs down there. So I'm not sure which one she was head of, the environmental chemistry lab. So Julianne Nasif is interesting, as we discussed um, just previously this morning, um, the OIG appears from an internal memo was looking at her for a potential violation of federal law. And I just want to be absolutely clear here. I don't want to be agent liable. So the Bates number is OIG underscore 021246. They note... Uh, uh, 18 USC section 1101, um, and then the rest of the memo for the following few pages uh, includes uh, factual uh, uh, facts that could be used to um, engage in a prosecution under that statute. Hmm. <laughs> and that was the boss of both labs. Yes, and again, as we mentioned this morning, one of the key things was an email where she wrote to the lab director saying, FYI, we are not actually following Swig Drug. <laughs> in spite of what you may be testifying to in court. Right. But anyway, we talked about that at length earlier this morning. I, I just wanted to uh, point back to that for a second and provide the um, OIG Bates numbers. Thank you. And the name, right? Because we just referred to her as the lab, uh, uh, lab staff or lab senior lab officials, but it was actually Julie Nasif who was the, the direct uh, head of chemistry. Well, and and yeah. it does it does sort of raise an interesting que uh, problem that the OIG report um, uh, paints itself into a corner on, which is its conclusion that Annie Dukin was a sole bad actor. Um, runs runs aground a when you talk about the, the Coverdell grant is discussed uh, in the report and the verbal gymnastics necessary to, to, to remain eligible for that grant um, and the obvious cover-up that was taking place to keep the grant going. And I think the word cover-up and grant cannot coexist. Yes. Uh, and therefore, it took somebody to... In the report, but they don't... That there's an email where the lab administrators admit that they are lying, right? So, right. I mean, it, it makes it sort of murky where, well, maybe the personnel didn't really understand that they weren't following SWIG drug. That's a possibility, maybe, if you read the report in one manner. But uh, they had these emails showing that they were acutely aware that they weren't doing what they were telling the public they were doing. Mm. Right. Very forcefully on the stand too. That's right. Anyways, yeah. clip, uh, clip eight. Okay. I met with her once a, a good once to twice a month. Really? And where would you meet with her? In Boston. So you would come in to, it was 250 Washington Street? Uh, no, at the time I was home. Uh, yeah. And now, what, what would those meetings consist of? What would you talk about? I was the mule. I used to bring drugs back from Boston to Amherst. So okay. I would go down there once a month. The mule. A month. That started in 2008. Drug mule. Alan Stevenson did that prior to that. Okay, so you would, um, and I'm going to refer to that as some of the overflow testing that you did. Yes. So you would, it's fair to say Hampton was a pretty busy place in terms of the drug laboratory. Oh, yes. And you would, so you would go to Hampton, pick up, Drugs yep. to then bring back out to your lab at Amherst and test them. Correct. And then return. Correct. Can you describe the, the procedure when you went to go pick up the drugs? How would they check those things out to you? They'd have them already in boxes. They'd give me a sheet of all the, uh, the uh, sample numbers. I would verify the sample numbers with my list and I would sign the list saying I received these samples and whoever gave them to me would sign the list saying they gave them to me. Okay, was that uh, an evidence officer? Yes. Do you, do you recall any the evidence officers their names? Uh, uh, handsome lab. Shirley uh, was one of them. I don't forget her last. Shirley Sprague. Yep, that's one. She was one of them. Elizabeth O'Brien. Yeah, Betsy. 
And she was the other one. That's you, Brian, was the other one. There was a third, but I didn't deal with her very often. We used to see those two. And how long were you doing this overflow testing for the Hanson map? Uh, how long? It probably went back to a lot. I say even be prior to 2000. It's been a long time. Yeah. They had, they were short of staff. We had one time seven chemists working there. I mean, and a lot of that work was just doing here. It worked. So you did a lot of that overflow and yeah. for well over probably say 14. Uh, I bet you at least that's on. And uh, did anybody, did you ever ask why you were doing that? Was there any discussion about you doing more or less? Or It was basically they couldn't keep up. You know, when I took over, it was the same thing. They were just falling behind. Yeah, uh, they were a year behind. Uh, were, there, were there any particular substances that you tested um, over others? Do they give you only specific things or does it, did it run the gamut? It, no, it didn't run the gamut because they tried not to give us the, uh, the big trafficking cases. But what they normally tried to do was give us an area of the state that we would go to. When we started off, we were Mall and Barnes. We did those for maybe five, five, ten years, maybe. And then later on, we ended up doing, I think we did Framingham. Actually, Framingham came to our labs for, I think, for a short while, bringing samples down because they were so back locked on in Boston. And then toward the end, we did we didn't do any Boston proper samples, but we did south of Boston. It was just easier for us to if we had to make the commute down there for court. So like Plymouth County. Yeah, Plymouth. The indicate was included too. We make trips down there occasionally. Was there, was there an overtime budget then? Uh sporadic. Yeah. All right. There's a few different things there. So first like transferring the evidence samples back and forth between the labs, I don't think is illegal. But the flippant manner in which he's talking about it, like being drug mule, uh, raises concerns about how seriously he took his job. But aside from that, uh, probably the more important thing out of this segment is that he noted the Hinton lab was a year behind. And so people yep. might know this, but there are defendants who are being held pre-trial because they cannot make bail because they don't have family or, you know, friends to, you know, pay their hundred dollar bail who are being held six, eight, you know, 12 months before a drug cert gets in. <laughs> and, and, and the other thing, Chris, is that in the OIG report, somehow all of this extra testing that was being done by the Amherst lab was not mentioned once. They, they kept it exclusive to the what was going on at the Hinton lab, but a lot of the Hinton samples that were being represented in court that way were done at Amherst. So their testing is very much relevant to what was going on at Hinton right. because they, they were testing Hinton samples. And, and there's a, uh, an additional problem that I haven't seen anyone in, in, in the government um, address, which is that Amherst purported to be doing a two-chemist system. Um, and I believe, uh, uh, excuse me, Hinton was, but Amherst was not. And so wouldn't you have a confusing uh, set of facts as a prosecutor that you're going to get a drug, you're going to get two cases, two drug certs, and they're going to look different. And you're going to lay foundation on direct in one case saying it's a two chemist system. And then the other one, you're just going to like leave out that line of questioning. I and mean, it seems, it seems odd that you would have uh, a seamless spillover system without someone ever raising this issue of the differences between the two labs. That seems right. That highlights the problem of not having protocols and procedures written down anywhere. Right. Right. Big time. And so they had no protocols and procedures, but what about the equipment and who was maintaining that equipment? I'm sure there was a certified vendor taking care of all of it. Let's, let's uh, play clip nine here, Randy, to, to confirm that. Um, now in terms of the lab budget, you had mentioned about um, the money, ordering supplies. Can you explain to us how that worked and who did you work with in coordinating uh, supplies, um, maintenance of the machinery, just day -to -day, things for day-to-day -day operation. Well, we, I did most of the maintenance myself, me and uh, Sharon. And, say, and what kind of maintenance is that that you did? You know, replace parts or change the oil and the pumps. 
clean the instruments. Becky helped too. You know, it was me, Becky, and Sharon who did the bulk of the year. Sonia never really got involved in that. You know, did she ever ask you why? Nope. If she could learn or I nope, never had a desire. You know, Becky was willing, so we didn't need that many people. So that's what would be happening in Boston as far as maintenance of that. They did, but they're mostly around. So I mean, when you, you get stuck, you get stuck. You got to call in an outside contractor, but that was expensive. And you, you had to just jump through some hoops to get the kind of stuff done. Okay. I mean, now, would you ever call? Um, DPH or call um, Julian Nassif and say, listen, we, we, the machine broke. Um, we need to bring someone in to fix it. And was, that, was there any pushback about that? No, it was I usually done with the person on a personnel with the purchasing department. And, and if there was a snag, I would go to you know, Julian and say, hey, we got to have it done. We need this machine. And when I mean, you would get into snags, what does that mean? Well, it, it, and we're in a small satellite lab. I don't think they wanted to spend a lot of money on us. Yeah. Is, do you think they were kind of spending more money on the Hanson lab as opposed to you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and when you say more money, like what resources did they have in Hanson that you did not have? Well, I thought they always had better equipment. You know, much better equipment. Matter of fact, the last mass spec we got was a used one from their lab. <laughs> And in fairness to Jim, in court, he definitely said, oh, yeah, all the tests we run are on shit equipment that we maintain, and we have no certification whatsoever. I'm sure he, you know, he went over that with everyone he was uh, trying. <laughs> before you, I, Jimmy, I know you know a lot more about QC stuff, but before we get into the issue of people in their own lab trying to um, do these things, I would want to note that in Farrick's resume, uh, which is contradicting what James Hanson just said, um, she noted that she was doing this type of stuff. So I'm trying to pull up the PDF right now, and if I can get an actual quote from her resume, um, I'll provide it. But uh, uh, despite what he said, she was representing that she was doing exactly what he said she was not doing. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah, that would be a great thing to find. Yeah, and there's another concerning fact, which is that when you get a used machine from another lab, um, usually because the other lab has its own budgetary um, uh, maze to, to run through, uh, you have to say things like, this machine is no good, we can't use it anymore, yeah. uh, it's cost uh, uh, prohibitive to keep it maintenance on, but let's give it to the other lab. Uh, <laughs> Right, it's it's like uh, it's, not, it's not your big brother's pair of jeans. Yeah. Right. It's worn out of equipment. Right, it's not like an iPhone that some people go and they get a new one every year. Um, I mean, it's, it seems like that uh, uh, to get a hand me down. I think uh, suggests that there may have been some other issues uh, aside from who's doing the maintenance. Right. And also, how much, honestly, is a contractor to come in there and fix it? A couple hundred bucks, if it takes, like, it's, I mean, what is the most they're going to charge? $100 an hour, $200 an hour? Like, I mean, if it's highly technical, maybe two to 300 I mean, that's a lot of money per hour. But, like, how long is it going to take? One to possibly two hours to fix and, it correctly? Like, And, like, how important is it that you're getting, I don't know, accurate results that affect the livelihoods of the people that you're testing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but okay, so this is a this is a lab run by the state. So it had to have had this I mean even though it had a smaller budget than Hint, it had to have like a multi-million dollar budget, right? Let's let's play clip 10 and find out exactly how many millions they were spending on to make sure people's evidence was tested properly. Okay. Um what do you do you know what was your what was the allotment into the budget? How much did you have for you? I, you know, I, we tried to figure that out a few times. I, I'm guessing around 100000 It's hard to do because, you know, how the state runs. Come May, you got $15,000 you got to spend. So we buy all the stuff that we might need in the future. So now we got a surplus of that stuff. So maybe next year we don't need so much. So it, it was hard to get an accurate picture, but I'm figuring maybe 100000 a year. And did you ever voice your concerns to... Julian, NASA, or anyone else about concerning the, the lack of budget or I mean, problems with the older machines? Oh, yeah. I'm just always 
you know, gave me a, a wish list of stuff that I thought we needed and stuff. And a lot of stuff that he just wouldn't do. I mean, we're, yeah, I remember we're in a small place. And they always held that over our heads that they're going to shut us down. We gave too much grief. And that's always on the back of our minds. So we could have pushed for more security, which we did a few times and that was dropped. And when you, when you, when you made those pushes for new equipment, for security or just in general, mm-hmm. your budget, who, who pushed back on that, if you know? I really don't know. It was, Alan Stevenson did most of the uh, work on that kind of stuff. He, he was, uh, he really wasn't a hands-on chemist that much. He spent most of the time doing, you know, uh, laboratory management. Well, he did help us out occasionally when the staff started shrinking, but I'd say 90% of his time was spent on laboratory management. And who's Stevenson? Cam Allen Stevenson. He was my boss prior to when I took over. Okay. Did you yeah. discuss this with Alan? Yeah. Did he ever voice, did he voice his frustrations to you about this? Yeah, a few times. It was because it was written in the, uh, if you look at the legislation funding for the uh, public health, it's always in there that the uh, drug labs would have priority. Well, we were never given priority. You know, he complained. It was on deaf ears. You know, it wasn't me complaining, it was hearsay to me that he did complain, both Cam and uh, Charles Fulani. Huh. Yeah. hundred grand to run this lab. So, like a bunch of different stuff. Um, I just emailed you all the PDF of Farrick's, uh CV. I, I was saying earlier, I was trying to find that. And quote, has over 10 years experience operating, maintaining, and troubleshooting gas chromatographs, infrared, and mass spectrometers. So that sort of undercuts Jim Hanchett's earlier statement that she had nothing to do with maintaining the equipment. But as far as the money, um, you, you know, that's a, a very small budget to run a government lab. <laughs> Dude, think about how many samples are coming through that place. And this is, these are technical processes. The, these, you, you need reagents. You need, you need all kinds of materials and equipment and staff to run this properly. A hundred grand? Like, yeah, that's it's like- oh, it's so low that you almost think that like it's got to be wrong. Yeah, you know? right. it's like it's so low. You're like, how is that possible? No, not not a hundred thousand. You mean like a million dollars, right? Like, yeah. what? Um, and I just think about these like TV shows, like Law and Order and stuff. Every time they show like a chemistry lab, and it's like super high tech, nice glass doors and all this stuff, and like reality is just like a dusty chemistry room run by just. Fools. <laughs> yeah, a, a dump on the UMass Amherst campus dorm room. You know, like yeah. uh, under the dorms, it's these guys, uh, like with, uh, you know, scientifically pure uh, cocaine and heroin. Yeah. Hey, dude, we need a we need a new standard. Uh, could you check the trash? <laughs> uh. All right. So. Um, Let's go. I was going to do the snag and purchasing, but let's go to the the twelve. Uh, and if he was talking to Charles Salemi, because he just mentioned him, so so go to that number twelve. All right. So just then, skip over one. Yeah, skip over one. All right. There we go. Have you in communications with Charles Salemi anytime? Not really. I, I run into him. I went down there because he was down the lab. He was in different section than where the uh, receipt where the drugs were taken in. But I, you know, occasionally it would seem. Did he have any more duties and responsibilities, would you say, than you, than you had at the MRS lab? Oh, other than, you know, larger staff, a larger sample of them. Probably pretty much the same. Did you ever have discussions with him concerning budgets and machinery and anything like that? You know, just, you know, wish list stuff we needed and stuff. And, you know, he said the same thing. You know, they, they aren't getting anything either. So he voiced similar yeah. concerns with you about lack of. Lack of funding, but you know, lack of support in public health. I mean, it goes right to the top. Right, it, which is, was, you know, years ago, because that's something we were afraid of our jobs. Yeah. You know, we weren't funded properly. Um, we, everything that they found, you know, wrong with our lab, it would have been fixed because we requested funding to, to be, uh, you know, to, to go under, you know, the, all the uh, ask, the setups and stuff where they actually come in and check your lab and stuff. We, we asked for that. Now, was agreed to stay on to uh, implement that. After he retired, he was going to come back as well as three consultant. 
And when you say by coming into checks, was that similar to the one that the state police did when they took over the lab after the accreditation? Yeah, yeah, more or less. Monitoring. We would have applied for accreditation, but they, I think the cost was 20000 or something, and they, they refused us. Oh, 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 Chris, try not to puke in your mouth over that twenty grand. I just want to say again, we're up to somewhere close to $100 million that this whole fiasco has cost the state. And the, so this is really interesting to me um, that they, the lab, according to Jim, I mean, the, the, he could have been, you know, this could have been butt coverage. But if they're begging to be accredited and they're like, nah, and, and the guy who retires, the former manager is like, dude, I will sit here and do it myself. I will get you guys accredited. It's going to cost 20 grand. And they're like, absolutely not. No, no. Keep using your crap process and keep using your crap equipment. We can't afford it. And all these people were scared to say anything because they're scared they're going to close the lab down. Like that's when, when you hold the sword of Democles over people's heads. It's no way to run any kind of business, especially not a drug testing lab. And the numbers, again, they boggle my mind because the stuff they were skipping corners on, like drug standards, which is an essential part of a criminal prosecution, you know, if you work out the math, like I sent you guys PDFs of USP's catalog. So like assuming heroin standard is like $160 per vial, even if you assume they use the whole vial for a GCMS run, it's like a dollar sixty per case, but probably half that if they're using blanks. And also, there's no way they use up the whole vial per run. Right. <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 interesting that when the doors closed, suddenly everybody was complaining about lack of accreditation and lack of funds. And yet for the years and years and years of operation and, and chemists even testifying in, uh, uh, in, in criminal trials, there was not a breath of that. Um, uh, instead, everything was done perfectly and, and according to sore drug. So it's sort of interesting that, that, that there was some rewriting of history, I think, that was taking place. Well, this goes to the broader proposition that's been poking itself up throughout the series that people generally do not care about the criminal justice system in the way that you would think they do. So like the legislature, you think, would want to make sure that people who are guilty get convicted and serve their sentences and people who are innocent do not serve sentences. You don't want to think that they're cutting corners over a, a dollar and 60 cents, right? In some of these cases, people go to jail for like 10 years, which costs the state thousands of dollars just to house them, right? Just the math doesn't make sense. It does, well, but dude, it's, it, you're, you're looking at it the wrong way. Who do they work for, really? Do they work for the people that elect them or do they work for the police union or the, you know, the, the law enforcement is the, is the tail wagging the dog is really the question. And my personal experience, because I have taken this to two state legislators, I've, I've moved once since this case has been going on. I took this to two state legislators and my state senator, and they all were like, yeah, there's nothing we can do. They weren't even interested. They, they, were, they, were, they mocked or they, they feigned outrage and then when like push came to shove, I, I tried to get one of them to do a press conference. They wouldn't do it. I tried to get one of them to like, you know, take it to the uh, whoever investigates the the law enforcement in uh, in the state legislature, and they refused to even broach the subject with them. It, it's Chris. It's it's terrifying. Terrifying is the word. All right. So um, so we are on. Uh, was the, the lack of funding just a perception? Like, is this just, I think they're trying to get to, was this just like scuttlebutt around the lab? That's yeah. clip 13. Here we go. And when you say that you, you feared that you'd lose your job and close down, is that, help me understand, is that just sort of lab talk, your perception, or were you getting that from somewhere else 
Well, they closed the lab before in the, the state legislature. I think they closed it twice in the state legislature, forced them to reopen it. So it was a reality. It wasn't, it wasn't idle talk. I got laid off. Sharon got laid off. It was a real. When was that? I, uh, probably late 70s, maybe I got laid off. I ended up working. I, you know, I, I always say I worked for public health for 38 years or whatever. But it was, I got laid off and I got picked up by the DEP for six months. And I got rehired back into public health at the same. So, so, and if you know, where, where did you, did anyone say that to you directly? Like, you know, you guys are going to lose your job to keep allegating about the situation. <laughs> well, he did. No, <laughs> uh, no, this wasn't direct. It was never a direct threat. But I mean, it was always staying up in the back of our heads. You know, you push too hard, and they're going to close the lab. You know, some of it might have been just scuttlebutt, but you know, in reality, they closed it twice, possibly three times. I guess that my memory is a little shaky, but the legislature forced them to keep it open. <sighs> They closed the lab. They just like, yeah, you're closed. And they fired the guy. And then they hired him back. And he, why would you want to go back? That's, that's the cool, like why? Anyways, anyone else have any thoughts on that? I mean, it just, as a government employee, like having gone through this experience, like I sort of commiserate with them because when you raise issues having to do with the budget, it's, uniformly shot down so uh, you know i don't know <laughs> well i mean it, it it i think if you're talking about a budget of you know um staplers uh i i get i get it um, but there are certain things that stop being a budgetary matter and start being something else. And I would say the validity and soundness of scientific testing seems to be an area where you need to revisit your budget. And if you can't expand your budget to meet your needs and to, to match your, um, your stated um, outcomes, then I think you have to scale back those outcomes. Uh, so if you can't, if you can't deliver... 20 children safety, safely to school, but you can only deliver five children safely to school, you probably shouldn't try to deliver 20 children unsafely to school. And so I think that that's what's, what I sense here is everybody knew the budget was, was useless. And there's this claim about, well, we, we, we need to uh, get more money or I guess you know, it's binary or shut down the lab. But did nobody ever say, let's scale back criminal prosecutions of drug offenses because we don't have the money to, 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 to truthfully testify about what we're doing to these samples? Um, no, because in the police department with the fines and fees. So anyway. <laughs> All right. So Cliff, we'll, we'll do a couple more for this episode and then, we'll, uh, and then we'll cut it and revisit next time. So let's do clip 14 next. All right. You must admit that that it was closed because of maybe budgetary yes. things. It wasn't because you guys were squawking or no, anything, right? no. Okay, but that was always in the back of our minds. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, do you know who Julie Hahn was? It's Linda. Julie Hahn. was Hahn. It was the, Julie wasn't her first name, was it? I don't think so. If you know, yeah, she was the head. Of, she was above Julie Nassif. Okay. And who who was above Arbach? Uh, and would you remember his name? Arbach. Arbach? John Arbach? Yeah. Did you ever talk with him? Never. Did he ever meet with you? No, never. Did Ms. Hahn ever meet with you? No. Always dealt with Julie. It's just Julie. She was the only one. Julie and, and Charles Klein. That's right. what you're saying. And the people in you know, the uh, evidence section. Or in the uh, purchasing or in, in supply. I dealt with them too. A lot of times. They would tell us to pick supplies up from them rather than order out. You know, I have no idea how the bookkeeping worked, but like paper and stuff sometimes. It, you know, it depends what it was. Chemicals we always ordered was always shipped to us, but other supplies at times we picked up down there. Toner cartridges because they buy them in bulk. And off name brands too, which worked like crap. When you say that, what do you mean? Well, you, you know, we always had. Hewlett Packard uh, printers and stuff with our instruments. 
and they wouldn't buy look back at toner cartridges because they're too expensive. So they get the off, you know, name brands or whatever, and it just wouldn't work as well. So, like, maybe a supervisor at a government lab um, should know how bookkeeping works and maybe a little bit about accounting, but anyway. <laughs> and there, th this is the building 19 of labs. That's what this is. They're getting knockoff toner. They're getting second rate, uh, you know, stuff. The rugs, I'm sure they have all those oriental rugs from building 19 all over the lab, you know, is hard. It's, I mean, this is a joke. Like they couldn't even get regular toner. Like <laughs> the, the, I mean, not to make light of of everything. I mean, I, I understand the predicament that, that they were probably in, but the, is no one concerned that that Jim Hanchett, as the supervisor of one of two drug labs, had never met his boss's boss? That's unbelievable. Never had any regular contact with them. I mean, it, you he know, was doing the drug analysis for half the state. Yeah. Because I think that the sense that comes out is, uh, uh, and this is maybe part of the cover story as well, maybe it wasn't a good idea to give DPH law enforcement activities, but maybe it wasn't a good idea to give DPH law enforcement activities. I mean, that seems to be a, a, a real problem. Uh, Linda Hahn had, uh, by, I mean, I've watched her testify. I would say she had about 0% interest uh, in what was going on in the labs that, that she controlled. Uh, and Julianne Nassif um, uh, was very interested in remodeling the Hinton lab. Uh, and I'm not clear what other aspects of the drug testing uh, uh, excited her intellectually, but it wasn't, um, uh, so it didn't surpass the remodeling effort. All right. <laughs> so she, she wanted to hang a chandelier in the shit show lab. So <laughs> We, we want to go open concept is what I heard. <laughs> yeah, open concept. They need a more modern think, look. Yeah, we want a waterfall in the background. Uh, Julie, we can't get uh, equipment. We can't do the testing. Oh, yeah. And can we get like, you know, uh, there's no feng shui in here. Can we get, you know, a, one of those rock gardens where you, you the sand thing that Ilias was talking about before? We can do that. <laughs> um, all right. I was just going to ask, we're going to get through quote 17, right? Or yes, quote 17 is where we're going to stop. So we're, and we are, so this is another accreditation question. Did you try to get the lab accredited before? 15. Right. Here we go. We're talking about having people come in and check the lab. Yes. Okay, and essentially get the lab accredited. Yeah. We did have somebody come in years ago, back in the early, early 80s. We heard somebody from, I think it was, Northeastern, he was a, uh, he came in in both apps. He gave us a, uh, a protocol for handling powers. And that was, everybody was trained on that. We had to test 10 different powers, determine what they were and percentage. And that was mid 80s. And that was the last time they really did anything. So in, in all your time, since 77, the lab, that was really the, before the state police took over, that was the only time someone came in and, the only time, yeah. But we did have a very rarely. Sometimes we do some tests. You know, they would uh, send us a few from Boston, and, and you know, I know one of the chemists could run the test on it, send it back, and they submit it to the DEA for you know get the results. Okay. So um, to be credited, it's fair to say that there are certain guidelines that were established by the Drug Enforcement Agency for a forensic laboratory. Yeah, what well, was the Drug Enforcement Agency? It was uh, SWAG, I think. The, it's the, the working group. Yeah, the working group. Yes, Swinger, Swinger, something or whatever it is. It's been Gary, I think. Yeah. On, and what, what did explain them to us? And well, basically, that was what Alan was going to do. He was going to get us accredited through them. I mean, we tried to, to do as much as we could without the actual accreditation. But the accreditation was stopped. The process was stopped. You know, shortly after he retired, the money wasn't there. And <laughs> like, I, I love how he doesn't even know how to pronounce it. He's like swaggers. Right. Swag? Like, no, it's not the shit your company gives you, you know, instead of a bonus. <laughs> a hat, you know? Uh, <laughs> company labeled uh, pens. Well, I like how he said we tried to do as much as possible, um, except for actually getting accreditation. 
it's like it reminds me of the way I drive on on the Mass Pike, which is I try to follow the speed limit as much as possible without actually achieving that number. But yeah, <laughs> for our listeners, just to be entirely clear, there are two different things. So one is whether or not you're following um, swig drug, which is you know nationwide accepted as the floor. You can't go go below that and still have admissible evidence, and then. Above that, if you want to um, sort of bolster your lab results in the jury's eyes, you can be accredited um, with Ask Lab or, you know, what have you. Um, so they weren't even meeting the bare minimum. And not only that, the lab supervisor doesn't even know how to pronounce the name of the bare minimum. <laughs> Dude, he got it. It was Schwig. Remember? It was Schwig. Wig or swag or Wig or swag. Oh, dude, I don't know, dude. I was drunk. Oh, I mean, no, no, no. Uh, 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 that, was, that was the inside voice coming out. Sorry. Um, dude, you forgot I'm he's sorry. retired, man. He's been retired for, you know, a few days. For, like maybe a half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> I'm retired. Not fired. Um, so, but here we go. What? So we're gonna find out what he did because he knows Swerg, and he knows what he did that was outside of Swerg. And um, they also go in Alias and uh, Chris. Here's the one chemist system overview in accordance with uh, Jim Hanchett. So let's hit this. This is a good one. And um, so they essentially make all recommendations. Correct about our forensic laboratory yeah. and what should go on at that. Yeah, lab. I think we met most of them pretty closely. Let's be good. They say best we could. Can you describe some of some of the things that they recommended that you tried to do the best you could? Well, uh, you know, as far as uh, well, one of them was we never you know looked over every sample that was tested by another chemist. What we did, we would just look at the results of the uh, actual printouts. So and uh, you know, made a program. We're testing the evidence. Results from the uh, where you tested it, it list the sample number and it list the results, so that it would have to match what. You reported in your results, whereas under their more stricter rules, you were supposed to go in and look at all their notes, you know, review all their page results. And some of the samples, I, I've had you know thousands of pages. So, so you know, it was for you know staff of like four people was you know, we'd have to have another full time chemist, if not two, to do wait totally. Your fucking job, man! <laughs> it's called verifying the work. No, they did not. What, is, what, is, what procedures at the Hanson Lab are different from yours, if you know? Well, prior to Melendez uh, Diaz, they had uh, one or one or two chemists who ran the mass specs. That was the confirmation, all the drug testing. So they would have to agree with what the chemist sent them, and their results would have to agree. So that was their check. Um, so when you say have another chemist review. Yep. That, that chemist would go back, look at your entire body of work, right. review everything that you did, mm -hmm. and then they would also sign off yes. on, on the test. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like a primary and a secondary. Yeah, kind of. But it was just to make sure that you had everything right, you know, crossed all your teeth, dotted all your eyes. Had the correct amounts for the drugs yeah. that you were being <laughs> tested. Overkill, but that's my opinion. Overkill. Overkill. Huh. Then, I'm glad this guy also to verify. Oh, sorry, Randy. No, I was gonna say I'm also glad this guy isn't in charge of any restaurants. Yeah, we clean the pots and pans sometimes, yep. and you know, some people clean the silverware. I mean, that's just a lot of work. If we we, we would need to hire another dish guy to do that, right? Or running an airline. <laughs> yeah, it's Jeez. overkill to screw in all the nuts on the fuselage. <laughs> some people do that. Uh, he actually, in a past life, he does say later in the interview that he was running the Titanic and it was overkill to <laughs> slow down in an ice field. <laughs> it's, it's like industry standard was to have an iceberg uh, notifying device, but we didn't think that was important. Yeah. Uh, it was Berg something. I, uh, I can't remember. <laughs> ice swag. Ice swag. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. Perfect. All right. This yeah. is the 17. This is the last one that we'll do uh, yeah. for this episode. So if this is honestly like it's been going downhill. This is where, where this is a cliffhanger. This is the who shot JR 
for uh, everyone who's old who knows that reference of this episode. So please hit it. Okay. Here we go. Uh, what other things um, did um, the standard working group for drugs? What what other things did they suggest be done? Oh, the drugs innovation that, that maybe you didn't do. The standards we didn't have a lot of the standards we had we they were old. We didn't have the uh, and you're supposed to keep a copy of the uh, of the the invoice that came in with it. They always give test results of that. We're supposed to keep that, which a lot of times we didn't get. When I started there, and up until probably 2000, we used to get a lot of uh, our drug samples from pharmacies that closed down. We were part of food and drug. And if a pharmacy had a fire or something, all those drugs had to be destroyed. We used to destroy the drugs there. So as part of that, one of the, uh, one of the inspectors, if we needed a certain drug, he would you know, give us a bottle of whatever it was and then we'd use that for our standards. Hopefully it wasn't still on fire. Legitimately, you know, proven that it was, you know, whatever was the standard. And that is the, you know, the uh, suggestion, the uh, results. But we always checked it and we proved it was. Okay, so when a standard would come in, you were supposed to get something from the, the, the chemical company, right? right? It is what it was, and here's the test. And then you would also run a test to, right, generate, to, prove, it. to prove it. And that was something else that right. was supposed to be done, but you didn't do. Right. Well, we couldn't afford it a lot of times. And to make heroin with a lab. Okay. That was part of the job. You needed heroin standard. We had plenty of morphine from pharmacies, and we need the uh, heroin for the morphine. And that was our standard. Our signals could be, you know, considered a secondary standard. Because we always had a primary just to ensure. The primary we always used for quantitation. And that was obtained from chemical companies. Okay. So but not enough of it. It was expensive. <laughs> it, it wasn't expensive, as Chris has pointed out a number of times. Go ahead, Chris. I love that. Gosh, so it's mind-boggling. Uh, a number of things. Uh, just first, besides the making up heroin stuff, the standards were old. So that's an issue in and of itself. If anyone lives in the Boston area, you can go to the Harvard Medical School Countaway Library. That is at 10 Shattuck Street, Boston. You go down to the basement and you can look up um, the USP's catalogs that tell you when stuff is valid. And uh, you can then compare them to uh, records that DPH held in the Hinton lab. Um, they didn't have any records at the Amherst lab, but at least you can go to Hinton and figure out when standards expired. Uh, and if you want to get really fancy going back a number of years, you can go to the National Institute of Health Library in Bethesda, Maryland at 9000 Rockville Pike uh, and then figure out when some of their other even older standards were supposed to have been expired, but they were still using. So uh, like that's exclamation point one, and we haven't even gotten into the fancy stuff. So you guys... No, that's just the... Go ahead for a minute. <laughs> okay. Um... We would get drugs from burned down pharmacies. Ilias, please, please, please give us your thoughts on the burned down because you brought that up a couple times, and that is a delight. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's one of those where do you start um, uh, issues. Uh, first of all, uh, that can't be legal. <laughs> no, Let's start there. Um, uh, second, uh, I want to know who it was. Uh, that was uh, taking um, rescuing drugs from a pharmacy fire and then um, uh, uh, offloading them uh, 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 to Jim uh, Hanchet. I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, 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 scenario there I'd like to know more about. Probably want to know about those fires. I think that'd be interesting. <laughs> I know. Like, were they intentionally set so they could do this? Like, where, did they also peddle in Halloween decorations from those? Right, and, you know how badly singed were the uh, were the vials, um, uh, and, and so there, there's that. There's also chain of custody issues. Um, he did, said that they didn't have the money to test them, so that you're getting uh, uh, stuff that was rescued from a fire uh, that might be suspect that wouldn't meet any accredited uh, or swear drug standards anyway. Uh, wouldn't you really need to test that just if you were going to try to salvage it, wouldn't you really need to test that to make sure that it was not compromised? I mean, one, I'm not a chemistry expert, but one thing I vaguely remember 
from my Bunsen burner uh, experiences is that doesn't heat change things? Um, so uh, <laughs> so no, 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 no. The, the plastic didn't melt into, the, I know where you're going. The plastic didn't melt into the capsules, compromising the integrity. All of that stuff was tested out in accordance to Swig. So there, there's that uh, d- dimension. Uh, and then I think he, didn't he just say somewhere in there that he was making heroin out of, uh, from morphine? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, discussed this at length earlier. So uh, simply like trying to purify something I don't think is illegal, but chemically synthesizing heroin from morphine is illegal if you don't, you know, follow the exacting restrictions uh, from the federal regulations. And one of the, one of the things, it's not in this, this, uh, uh, this audio recording, but in the transcript of his subsequent grand jury testimony, he himself describes this as illegal. <laughs> is, He's the man. And is this the okay. wrong? Is this the wrong time to mention that the people whose samples you're testing are being accused of doing illegal things with drugs? Is this the wrong time to mention like that? Making, <laughs> like, like cooking crack in the lab, and then smoking it in the smoking said crack in a uh, court court uh house parking lot and dude so you know the next time i get questioned by the attorney what the fuck are they doing in florida like i know that's a great point like what are they doing in south carolina mississippi florida like anyways but seriously next time i get questioned by the attorney general's office i am just gonna randomly scream out in the middle of one of my answers i used to make heroin (laughs) i make heroin Uh, just like out. Oh, I make heroin too. Like yeah. this guy just like multi general's office. Like whips down his, you know, trousers, puts his you know what on the table and is like, go ahead and arrest me. Go ahead. I used to make heroin in your lab, guys. You're mm-hmm. not doing anything about it. And they didn't. Uh, so sad. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. I was like, are we listening to like an episode of Breaking Bad, but making heroin yeah. instead of crystal meth? I mean, what what's really going on here? Right. <laughs> I know. And this is again in a state lab that was testing drugs to lock people in jail. <laughs> All right. So, uh, any other thoughts on this first round? We only got it to us. Well, it's almost halfway through. Right. Just the other thoughts. No, nothing else happens in the interview. What's that? Yeah, nothing, nothing else, else happens in the interview. No, <laughs> we'll have no. To listen, I guess we'll have to listen next time to see what else he says. Yeah, it's with the iceberg. That's right. All right, guys, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Break Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out. 